0: Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen. This is Carter Thomas with the Blue Cloud Podcast. (laughs) I hope you're doing great. Today I have an awesome interview for you. This is one of my best friends in Silicon Valley. His name is Jean-Paul Sandy, and his story is terrific. So if you're interested in being an entrepreneur or startups or mobile apps or anything around those businesses... You're not gonna wanna miss this. Jean-Paul started by building a mobile ad network, which was then acquired so that he could roll into a company called Kiwi. Now Kiwi became one of the preeminent game developers on Android and a little bit on iOS, but they were specifically on Android. And what JP did is he went in and single-handedly built multi-million dollar user acquisition and traffic campaigns. It's, It's an unbelievable story what this guy did. JP has since moved on. Now he's over at Creative Live, which is one of the top online education classes that you can see on the internet. They focus on photography and everything else. And JP is running all the growth over there and doing a really terrific job at it, I must say. Most importantly, JP is probably one of the greatest guys and also one of, if not the smartest person I've ever met in my entire life. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation. He's a really, really great person to talk to. And the insights blew me away just talking to him for the hour or so that we chatted. So I hope you enjoy this. And without further ado, my friend Jean Paul. This is the Blue Cloud Podcast. Empowering the entrepreneurial lifestyle with insights on the leading trends in the mobile and digital landscape. Turning ideas to empires. So, all right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm sitting here with JP, and we're down at uh, Creative Live. What a beautiful day. JP, how's it going, man? Good, man. All right, great. Yeah, we're having a great time, and, well, let's just get into it. I think we've got some really cool stuff to talk about. We, uh, we're going to dive into things like... We well, have our flavored sparkling waters. <laughs> we do have our flavored sparkling and waters. You needed for podcasts. That's right, exactly. And, uh, yeah, we're going to talk a lot about uh, kind of, you know, your story, how you, you know, the last, like, five years of your life. And then we're going to talk a lot about things like mobile traffic and, uh, you know, game monetization Mm -hmm. and just kind of what these heavy-hitting games do. Because I know my experience going down to Palo Alto and seeing what you guys are doing completely blew my mind. And I think being able to show people a little sliver of that and just how it works is just super cool. I think it's going to be really inspirational to a lot of people. Um, So let's start, like... Way back in the day, I remember you told me once you built, you started off building a mobile ad unit. Is that mm-hmm. is that right?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a buddy of mine and I, we, um, we sort of looked around and said we wanted to start a business. The mobile piece of the business was, or the mobile space was really interesting, moving really fast. I mean, this was like 2009, 2010. So Android had just launched some, I don't remember what the name of the phone was back then, but it had just hit the market. iPhone was only two, three years out. And so we said... There seems like a lot of velocity, seems like a lot of arbitrage opportunity. There's a lot of things happening and when those big disruptions happen, there's room for people like us to just insert ourselves quickly. Um, so what we, we started thinking, okay, what does a phone give you that the web never gave you? or what makes it what makes an ad unit on the phone interesting because we knew advertising is usually the things that takes the longest time for incumbents to catch up and so we said okay well mobile advertising then will be an a gate in to the uh, to the mobile world and the big thing back then was local so the GPS coordinates and the location of the phone made it contextually aware and you know things like urban spoon and you shake the thing to find a nearby restaurant oh, yeah, right, all yeah, right, of those yeah. things were starting to get a lot of traction or at least that's what was being downloaded so we said okay well what can how can we pick back off of the uniqueness of location to inform an ad unit. And and at the same time this is group on time right? Groupon oh, right. and Groupon deals and local. And so we said, okay, well, I think there was like, it was like a so molo or something like yeah, that. Some, something right. like that oh, that yeah. went to die. I'm glad it died. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so we said, okay, let's do the molo part. So we said the mobile and local. So we, so Groupon, before Groupon now, it didn't exist. The instantaneous nature of the Groupon deals weren't there. It just sort of relied on email, which is pretty antiquated. So we said, well, what if we signed up to all these deal sites, which were rampant? I mean, I know some deal sites that you know, went under within a month, mm-hmm. but we were affiliates of them. So we said, okay, we became affiliates and said, if we can use an ad unit to use the location and GPS coordinates to show what the location of the uh, vendor giving the deal and show you a nearby deal, will people act on it? Mm-hmm. So is that a better way to just deliver Groupon deals to you? And then eventually we could source our own deals. Mm-hmm. Um, but at first, just as affiliates. So we went and bought some impressions from people from these sites, like a Craigslist app on Android, and we did Android because we could just launch immediately, no SDKs, nothing, no updates that take two, three weeks. It was just instantaneous impressions. And so we just guaranteed a CPM and started buying impressions and started filling it with an API for... Groupon deals, Living Social deals, Tipper deals, I and mean, there's all these kinds of sites. Yeah, yeah. And so we started delivering uh, local relevant deals, showing the distance, and people the click-through rates on these little banner ads were like 10, 12 percent. It was nuts because wow. it was very relevant to where they were at the time. Um, the problem is, once they clicked, it would release them into the Groupon website, you know, with our affiliate tags, and nobody was ready to handle mobile commerce at the time. And so, uh-huh. literally, we got all these clicks and zero conversions. I mean, made zero dollars from affiliate revenue because <laughs> oh no one converted, not one human converted. Oh my God. And, you know, there were little things like Groupon site never had the word Groupon on it. Yeah. It was just a G. And so people, did, I mean, it looked like a scam. And so we tried to sort of host things and try to use a, their APIs to, you know, Cloak essentially it, yeah. close the deal and kind of make a, le- a landing page for it. But, they, you know, they didn't even know what was going on at the time. So it wasn't, it wasn't something that was a priority. Oh my um, gosh. So, that we we sort of realized that there was something about having relevant and drawing attention to the banner ad. The banner ad doesn't suck. It's just the stuff in it sucks.
0: How long just how long did you, did it take to go from let's start this company to wow we have zero conversions? What was that time? Four period? months. Four months. Yeah. So okay. we
1: outsourced the development of the initial SDK, um, and uh, my buddy had previously been at Google. He um, coded all the backend, used all the APIs to be able to deliver the contextually relevant ads. And you know I just spent some time in photoshop just mocking up the stuff and i mean it was just it was not that hard once we created the right mm. um templates uh but we had to be fast um and so we did that we realized no conversion, so we said okay well now we're sitting on a few million impressions a day in banner inventory what can we do with this otherwise and you know i don't you know you'd start talking to people and people know about you and so fixu which is one of the big agencies that mm-hmm. buys for uh, apps started contacting us because app developers were starting to buy purchase ads you know this is the time when quattro became iAd, and it was a bunch of nissan ads and dunkin donuts ads and things like that this is 2010 going into 2011 okay uh beginning 2011 and so there were a lot of people a lot of brands were the ones buying the ads it was all cpm and there weren't a lot of apps marketing themselves yet because they still had to figure out you know ios just integrated payments and so apps started figuring out oh my god i can actually make money doing this Mm. this is there's a business that can be built on top of these platforms Um, And then Android, obviously, like two years behind that. Um, And so, because of that, we started getting interest from app developers wanting to market their apps. And obviously, you know, the cost per click model. And at the time, uh, CPM, cost per click, cost per impression, or cost per install, all of these people are, you know, wanting to price things with the least risk as possible because there wasn't a lot of monetary upside at the time. And games really hadn't come onto the scene strong, highly monetizing games hadn't yet. And so, Um, What we said was, okay, well, we'll we'll take anybody Mm. just to try to see if we can find a business model here. And so we started, we had Waze advertising for us. We had Outfit7 advertising for us. Those are the guys who do the Talking Tom apps. Mm -hmm. Um, We had Hotel Tonight advertising for us. And, you know, at the time, people were using incentivized installs to boost all the way up to the charts. And so the arbitrage game for them was going to be short-lived. Everybody knew it was going to go away. And we didn't have all that volume. So we sort of said, well, what's our angle? Um, how can we prove that we can charge more per an in, for an install for app developers? Um, and we said, well, if we can find a way to get higher quality installs, um, mm. that would win because then they're finding the right type of people. Right. right? How can we how can we Google search it for people in a mm-hmm. banner ad mm-hmm. so get a high intent, high quality user. Um, because we were only in three or four apps, we were in a slot machine, two Craigslist apps, and a cooking app or something, a recipe app, um, to get our impressions. And so, what we started doing is we started asking questions inside the banner because we knew from the Groupon deal if we show something relevant, people will see it. Mm-hmm. And so we started showing random A B questions, hmm. kind of like hot or not style. It was in, it was right around like Social Network, like just how the the movie. It was just how. Um, uh, how addictive it was to just make decisions so quickly on the fly, um, and so we started showing A/B questions that had no relevance whatsoever. All we wanted to do is draw attention to the banner ad. So we asked things like Big Mac or Whopper. We asked things like Coke or Pepsi. We asked things like, you remember your first, you always remember your first car or kiss. That was a great one to identify, male or female. And so, what we, yeah, so what we wanted to do is just draw attention to the banner ad. And once people started asking question, answering the questions, we started comparing them to our overall population, and people started real, they started answering a lot of questions. Yeah. And so then we, we said, okay, well, that's great, but I'm not making money on this, and I'm not gonna sell the panel data, that's too short-sighted. So we said, well, if they answer certain questions one way, we'll show them app A, and if they answer a question another way, we'll show them app B, hmm. an example. I'd rather plan it or wing it. If you're a planner, we show you a to-do list app that was advertising with us. If right. you rather wing it, we show you a hotel tonight. Yeah, okay. And so the problem is you're investing a lot of impressions and you could target users across different apps so you didn't have to ask them the same questions again. So that means you're, you know, you have to really blow it out and get a lot of impressions and find a lot of different sources of inventory so you can that arbitrage will eventually catch up, mm-hmm. um, and you can start just straight out targeting people without having to ask them any more questions. Hmm. But well, well, that was that was the experiment, and we didn't get it, we didn't have enough time to play it all out. And um, you know, at, by that time, we um, we decided not to sort of move forward with it. But you know, my buddy went over and joined Karma, that then got bought by Facebook, and then I joined Kiwi. Cool.
0: Wow. That's, uh, it
1: was a roller coaster. Yeah, it so it's like it just it's <laughs> all that was in nine
0: months. I know, I was gonna say, like that just to go through all of that, not only was it nine months, I mean, but to be 2010, 2011, nine months when like no one had any yeah. idea what the hell was going on. <laughs> no. It was just like No.
1: There were no just, experts. Yeah, like there was no <laughs> Carter Thomas podcast that I could listen to <laughs> yeah. to learn these things. Wow. Or listen to crazy people talk about their experiences like me. Yeah, what
0: a I mean, that's just I mean, and so that's, that's, that's a really interesting kind of uh, way to segment into how you got started at Kiwi because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people probably walked in there like, what's this whole app thing? Oh, I'll go try out this app business. And they walk in from a different background. And you yeah. walk in being like, I just got a nine month education.
1: <laughs> Crash Course. Uh, yeah, like in, in the craziness. <laughs> On the so, craziness,
0: yeah. Like, what was it like to go from being an entrepreneur having you know a very small team having total control and having you know working on that level and then walking into a pretty heavily funded gaming company. If anyone out there doesn't know, Kiwi is they raise a lot of money. They're down in Palo Alto. They've got some huge uh, top-grossing Android and now iOS games, and I think they're on multiple platforms beyond mm-hmm. that. And uh, JP was one of the early people at, at Kiwi and uh, helped them build it. So. What was that like? Because I think a lot of people listening are probably mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, and they've wondered, hey, what would it be like to go work at a startup? You know, yeah, what what, what what would I be giving up? What would I be getting? Yeah. Um,
1: so what was that like? Yeah, the amazing thing about Kiwi um, was that Omar and Chevette, who started Kiwi, actually um, made that transition easy because... First of all, they're they were unbelievable at what they do, but they were on they had been bootstrapped entrepreneurs before, so mm. they had launched a company together when iPhone first came out, making quiz, quiz apps, apps yeah. and other little games on iOS. And they had at one point they had three to the top five games, they had eight of the, seven of the top ten, and like I don't know something like fifteen <laughs> of the top twenty. Oh but like, but that, entrep- that bootstrap mentality it crossed over into Kiwi, even though we raised venture money, it. That, that type of velocity and mentality was very good for mobile because it moved as fast as they did. Mm. Um, So the the problem becomes when you you know you go from doing everything yourself and everything seems fast, but the industry might be slow. But for you it's fast. And so when you join a startup, you're starting to enter the sort of the frequency and the wavelengths of the industry, not your your sort of more uh, quicker iteration cycles, but Omar and Chavette were the other side of the spectrum, so it matched the intensity of the industry, and wow. I think that their experience of just being bootstrap entrepreneurs eventually got bought by Playdom, which got bought by Disney, and they sort of got bored just looking at longer cycles and said, I wanna do this again, this mobile thing sounds interesting. Cool. And so they started Kiwi, so the mentality was very, very, on, very, very bootstrap mentality from day one. Mm-hmm. And so it was really easy for me to just maintain that level of intensity when I got in there, and I was hired to run all of our UA and analytics uh, at Kiwi and UA being user acquisition, user acquisition. Yeah, yeah. yeah sorry. Um, and so. I think that knowing, uh, as a gaming company, you know, especially when you're venture funded, it's easier, but knowing that the investment you have to make, not only on the product side of the house and on the developer side of the house, but also on the analytics and the user acquisition part, and I know we're gonna get into that later. Um, that, from day one, you know, I joined Kiwi the first six months, I didn't buy a single user. Hmm. We were just building our analytics. Um, and wow. I think that that's a very important piece of why Kiwi was able to iterate so fast and where how we were able to you know, we reinvented ourselves a number of times in the way we, not only the way we promoted games, but the way we ran the games in the back end. And it all looks really seamless from the outside. But inside, we were learning because mobile was a different animal. Mm. Uh, Omar and Chavette had made games on Facebook before, and they had made some mobile games, but of a different type, not of the highly monetizing type. And I think that we were all learning how to how this will end up playing out on mobile, especially with a, one or two platforms, because our bet was Android. Mm. And so that was still in its infancy. Yeah. And so, I mean, they didn't even have in-app payments uh, regulated at the time. I mean, you could use anything. It was like and so all hacking It was a like Wild West, yeah. yeah. Some people say it still is, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was like the Wild West, and now they got their act together now, but back in the day, that was not as easy to know. That's
0: like, yeah, and I think that that's something that I really, uh, I liked watching uh, as a visitor, is I watched you guys go through three different offices over the course of yeah. your tenure. So tell me, just for everyone out mm-hmm. there, so you, you leave your, um, your ad unit company mm-hmm. You start at Kiwi. What is it like, just very, you know, 60 second overview. What is it like to walk, like, what do you walk in? What do you see? Where do you sit? Who's there? What? <laughs> yeah. Like, what is it even, like, are you in a warehouse? Are you in a, like, what is it?
1: At the very beginning, what was that? What was that like? Um. It was on the street I lived on, so it was easy. Yeah. So I just walk four blocks um, in Palo Alto. But you get there, and you're thinking, you know, big funded VC. You're going to have, like, you know, unbelievable offices and things like that. I didn't want that, but mm-hmm. I'm glad it wasn't, but it wasn't. I get there, and I see a wax bar. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this isn't what... <laughs> This is the address, and I'm not seeing Omar <laughs> yeah. or any semblance of a gaming company, unless we're in the back. <laughs> um, but apparently, we were above oh, the wax yeah, bar. yeah, yeah, so that's right. I remember that. Literally, you had to walk into a, this little door next to it to go up this thin <laughs> staircase to get into this attic on top of it. Oh, my god! I loved it. Yeah. Because you go in there, and typical to just the way we – the culture we wanted at Kiwi – very scrappy, very iterative. Um, you know, what you know, we had some things on the walls, but it wasn't like we filled the place with you know beanbags or anything. Mm-hmm. Like we were there to you know not have to be in that office forever. And so that mentality from day one and that intensity hit, and. You know, little you had, you had to handle things like, well, are we were ordering from Costco or we or buying it from Safeway Delivery, which is cheaper? How are we going to, oh, man, there's no coffee. We got to run out and cross mm-hmm. the street. And it was just like, you know, some contract artists, a few of us on the management team, and maybe two or three PMs. Mm-hmm. And that's what we had to work with. And wow. we had an offshore team of developers that were unbelievable. Um, they were ours. They, we had an office in Bangalore, India. And so we knew we had a team of, like, you know, 15, 20 engineers that we were ramping up as fast as we could. But that was it, and and it wasn't glamorous, and I and I and that taught us a lot, and that was on purpose. Yeah. Um, but you know, you show up and, and you think, well, some of these things are figured out, but when no one is there to catch you, then you're the only safety net, because if it's not someone else, mm-hmm. no one's brewing the coffee and no yeah. one's figuring out. Is the internet working? How many routers do we need? As we added people, we needed more routers, so we had to go do a Best Buy run to go buy a router. Mm-hmm, you know, I'd mm-hmm. probably have better things to do with my time, but it didn't matter. That was what was needed, so we did. went and did it. Yeah. If, if you could,
0: uh, I remember I went out to lunch with Omar once, and he, he said something really interesting where he wasn't really, I mean, I think it was because of his situation and just he'd raise money and everything, but he was just like, I have an opportunity to build something so big. He's like, and this doesn't happen very often. And that really struck me because I was like, this is the first time I'd seen someone who had that, that, that vision mm-hmm. um, that was so big. One question I, I want to ask you is, in one or two senses, if you can do it, what was the goal of Kiwi? Like you walk in there and you've got this scrapping mentality and you guys obviously have an enormous amount of mental horsepower what was the what was the vision of the company what were you trying to do
1: I think um a lot of people you know it it, sometimes people's objectives are to make money sometimes it's to, and the way to make money it can be to flip something quickly it could be you know try to build something big with the purpose of making money at Kiwi we could have you know you could have argued that personally Omar or any one of us could have made more money not raising uh you know, venture capital and doing it a different way. But that was never, we were never there for that purpose. We knew there was an opportunity to create unbelievable games on a platform that was nascent that people were not paying attention to at the time, um, Android. And to do that, we knew we needed to move fast. Mm-hmm. And so we raised money to be able to do it faster. Mm. And I think that, um, the, the the ability to do something big meant you could have a very big impact, and because um, sometimes people think big, they think dollar and market cap or you know valuation, but I think for us it was bodies and people that we could actually reach mm-hmm. through that platform because that platform was much more international than any other one, uh, and you know our mentality at Kiwi was always that you know it, and it reflected in how we staffed ourselves with an engineering team in Bangalore is, and talent is is not necessarily in just in the united states or just in the first world talent can be anywhere in the world and it can and to bring talented people together to do something special and reach that many people was the was the objective of why we why omar and chevette incorporated and why we raised money and why we made it a business instead of a personal project um and so you know and and i think that nowadays you know i mean we always had out offshore resources because we said well where can we get the best team of artists and if that meant full-time hiring a studio in Pakistan, that's what we did Mm -hmm. because they were amazing Mm -hmm. and it didn't matter to us. If we had to stay up later or get up earlier, it doesn't matter. The point is it was the best. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: I love that shit. I think that's just like, I mean, when you're around that kind of energy, it's just, that's when great things happen, you know, Mm -hmm. which kind of uh, gets me to the next question, which is what was the first big win and what was the first big moment when you guys we're at work and you said holy shit this is working or something that that we nailed that
1: yeah some people would i mean from the outside you might say it was the launch of shipwrecked because um, that was our first sort of big big top five grossing title but actually not it was it was friday april 13th of 2012 <laughs> that was the day we hit the button on our kiwi account in android market at the time publish our very first game we had published a couple test apps in another account but that was the day we hit the button for the first time and as soon as we did it we had no idea what was gonna happen we had no idea what to expect but you hit the button and as soon as you start seeing some of the data come in on your analytics dashboards and you start seeing things move you feel like for the first time the company has a heartbeat Mm -hmm. that's not just the people inside but it's the people engaging with your product and there's nothing like that feeling and I don't think you know Every game launch f- feels special, but the first time you hit the button You just don't you just you know, we were all huddled around the computer I mean people were wearing like animal costumes because it was an <laughs> animal themed game But just the first blip on the analytics you say this is real. Wow. Dude, there's a heartbeat so cool. there. Yeah. Yeah does yeah. that tells us there's a win just because a, the analytics worked. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it it we didn't view it as the end. That's when it began. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, so, lo- I
0: love that too, because I think that's something that every, not only every app app developer or app entrepreneur, but like any entrepreneur. Period. You know, like that mm-hmm. that feeling of of wow, we put so much into this, and now it, it's alive. You know, like yeah. you said, it has a heartbeat.
1: Yeah, your users breathe life into yeah, your product. You don't. A, you pour your life into it. It's they amazing. They breathe life yeah. into it. Yeah, I love it. I love
0: it. Now on the on the flip side, yeah, uh, because you know obviously business is not all all you know great. Oh no. What was the biggest uh, or what was the first kind of big failure? And the reason I, I like this question um, in this context is because a lot of times in the entrepreneur community failure and making mistakes is a little glorified. It's like mm-hmm. romanticized almost, where people say, like, "Oh, you got to fail your way to success," yeah. and like keep keep falling over yourself. But I think being in San Francisco, you realize that actually when you get to the startup level and there's a lot of money involved, failures actually, you don't come back from some mistakes. Like certain companies will, will make a mistake and they don't get stronger, they fold. Yeah. And that's why like, I think this is a great question for, uh, or that's something I'm really interested in yeah. from a startup standpoint. Mm-hmm. So what was the first big like holy shit moment <laughs> at, at Kiwi?
1: Um, I would say it was probably the launch of the next game, which came a month later, called Monster Monsterama Park. Mm-hmm. Um, we hit the top f- eight, top five free apps in Android Market, and I the thing on the first why, app? yeah, on, on the no on this on the, on the second album okay. Monsterama Planet we hit the top eight free games by download volume. Some people say that's a win. But how we did it was not exactly as deliberate as it seems. Everybody, you know, in retrospect, everybody, you know, humans like uh, narratives and we like stories and we like straight lines. Mm -hmm. And so we draw straight lines between things. But this thing zigs and zags like you wouldn't imagine. Uh, We have selective memory that way. (laughs) But I think for us, failure was more, you know, it was even me more than anything, because we were pushing this app so hard and we didn't properly understand all the dynamics of the ad networks and what the costs were going to be or how they were going to play out. Little things like an ad network being on GMT versus PST, mm. and if your ad setting is to spend as fast as possible, you don't realize that it's going to start spending as fast as possible at the beginning of the day, which is at the at night mm. in Pacific right. time, Exactly. and so we spent probably more money faster than we would have liked (laughs) and that was all on me yeah it was great success but the way we achieved success was to me a failure because it wasn't the way we had intended yeah Um, Yeah. because we didn't overspend entirely it's just the way we it went about it looks so linear it looks so clean but it happened in such a messed up way uh and it's me messing up and so and and you know i was mortified to figure all this out as we were going, obviously nobody knew what we had to go through uh, time because, I mean, it wasn't that much money in the in the grand scheme of things, but to us at the time, it was precious. Um, and so, but I think the important thing there was that from the outside, you could justify Oh, the way we did it was you know, kind of messed up or it like didn't go as smoothly as we thought, but we achieved what we wanted to achieve. It's great. That just protects you um, in some instances. But the you know, looking at myself and our team and how we went about making decisions along the way that led to that, happening was the most important thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and you know some of it was just nuances of you know these ad networks and things like that and how they work but other others are just auditing yourself and saying how did I make decisions along the way and how am I gonna change that going forward and then you know the next big launch was shipwreck later that year and it was just, I mean night and day and we achieved we achieved the same thing obviously at a different scale because Android had grown but the way we did it was so much different that if I had we hadn't gone through that we probably wouldn't have known what to anticipate the next time.
0: Yeah, and that, that I think that probably is a big part into you know the culture and the attitude you guys are having of just like we're not going to get beaten down. Things might not work out, but we're going to learn from it, and we're going to use this to fuel us f- to become better and stronger. Which you know, I think is a sign of like a, yeah. a winning. Yeah, and strategy. a lot of
1: times you know it's not just what the company did, but it's what the people involved did, and 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 you do it to make to help them learn. You know, I, I did it with people that work for me all the time you might do something and it, it might not work out, but you did it the right way and that's how we intended. So let's just think about the tactics being different next time versus, hey, we achieved success, but the way we did it wasn't sustainable. We got to change the way we achieve success because some people don't always audit themselves even in success. Yeah,
0: no, that's a, it's a really good way of looking at it. Um, all right, so kind of not, maybe shifting gears a little bit, but kind mm-hmm. of diving in to the actual Mechanic or the details of what you guys are doing. So beyond just the company, let's talk about the games, right? Because I think uh, what you guys were really specialists at—you in particular—were the like the funnels, the monetization, the funnels within the game, and then also the analytics that you guys Mm -hmm. had had set up. Um, I know you've you've explained this to me, and I know this is a big question, but walk me through, uh, or walk everyone through how a game like shipwrecked or or monster Hammer or any of these games um how do you build them to have these monetization pathways like how how does that how does that like what are you thinking about is it on like onboarding and level one and mm-hmm. bonuses and how to use ads yeah like what's just kind of if you were gonna write a one-page pdf on that what, what would it look like
1: yeah um that's probably a better question for the, the, the you know for the guy who's in charge of our product team because he was a Specialist and expert in monetization and engagement loops inside of games. That's mm-hmm. what he did, and that's where he came from, and that's where his training was. But you don't need to be an expert to to start. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. My perspective was unique because I was there measuring all the things, Mm. right? The inputs he was providing with, I mean, we had, you know, 50 tab spreadsheets of the economy and how it was going to play out because these were games that were quest-based. So we gave you quests, you completed them, you moved on, right? Humans have a natural tendency to complete to-do lists and Mm so that's what the games were based around. But I think the most important thing there is you got to be deliberate about what you're building. Are you building a game where you fling birds at pigs? And that has certain monetization loops and certain engagement loops, And are, or are you building a game that tries to make you build a town? And if you're building a town, what's going to motivate people? And it's really a lot of psychological and just a lot of experience will give you um, what you need to make that happen. But I think the most important thing is maybe creating a structure for people to think through it. And everybody can then apply it to whatever game that they're trying to build. Because again, you don't have to be an expert, but you got to be deliberate about the way you think about it. And there's very three very big components to any time we build a game to be very deliberate about and to think through and any game design document has these three things inside of it the first one is the engagement loop what is gonna make people come back again time and time again and not only what is what are the engagement vectors but what's the loop so what makes it reinforcing what's an so, example of that in, in um, or, for for the any town building game um, when you lay down a building you collect rent and when you Got collect it. rent, you collect more coins to be able to lay down more buildings and sometimes it. there'll be random drops of different currencies that you can use to purchase special buildings and so there's it's much more complicated than that mm-hmm. but there's, there has to be a, uh, a reinforcing cycle that the more you invest in your town, the more attached you become to it and the more special things you can introduce to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, rare, uh, you know, there are breeding games where you breed different dragons or something and then the rarity of the dragon is what draws you back and collecting might be, is Monster on was well, about collecting different monsters. Uh, so collection is one engagement loop. The other one is about building and, and uh, level setting and, you know, uh, reputation that you create in the game because the beautiful thing is you create these re- realities in these worlds that people step into mm. um, the world domination or team domination and some of these other rpgs but there's an, a very clear engagement loop so mm-hmm. just sit through and, and understand why people are going to like it not just the features but why they're going to come back and why more the more they come back the more they're going to like it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has to be independent for the most part of the monetization loop which is we call them when do they hit a wall or where are their pinches so where does the monetization loop um it's sort of uh, inserts itself inside the engagement loop and say okay. Well, you're so engaged and everything but oh That building is gonna take a little bit longer now to build But you can use some currency to speed it up and so where are the pinches felt that as because the, the engagement without the engagement loop you're not going to monetize mm-hmm. and You have to insert it at the right times so that people will feel the pinch at the right time to mo- to then convert to be a monetizing user, mm. um, yeah. and so you know other you know there are cooking games that it's because the time is running out and you're so far in and you almost served all your dishes to all your customers and so you just want to buy a little <laughs> bit more time or you want to have you know that one special order fulfilled. Um, other times and and, and, you know in other games it's level of mastery so you want every level to have three stars and to get three stars sometimes you might have to pay to cheat a little bit Mm -hmm. and that's the way it works too but that inserts itself inside the the engagement loop at some point but right when people are most motivated most addicted is when you want to use the monetization. That's when you want to ask. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the sep- the last flow, and I think on mobile it's a lot more limiting, is the viral loop. It happens a lot on Facebook, but, you know, sometimes they use the viral loop to supplement the monetization loop. That's why you get a million invitations to play Candy Crush. But the viral loop is just another way to grow the game. But that can be a very, there there can be a lot inside of the viral loop to try to help grow the game in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the very three different loops that you want to make sure you you spend time thinking through before you build a, you know, if you want to build a top monetizing game, um, because without it none of this happens by accident right these games aren't you know these games are very very sophisticated and you know you don't have to be at the top of the app store to make a good living and have a great experience doing this you just have to be very deliberate about your approach as deliberate as the top guys you I think you'd be successful and with those three buckets I remember last time
0: we were chatting here you were talking about how one of the big differences between a mobile game and something like a website, like Creative Live or anything, yeah. is that in a game, there's, for the most part, one clear path. Like, mm-hmm. bet- like down those, like every user is essentially pushed through one mm-hmm. specific path versus mm-hmm. the web, where you got 95 million yep. experiences that you could possibly have. Is that per- is that a uh, is that applicable? for all apps, so would you would you recommend to someone say, just focus on, like every user is going to go down the same path, or mm-hmm. would you try to like create custom experiences? Or?
1: Yeah, I think um, the path is more uh, in a game, it's so d- clearly defined uh, at least in art, the type of games we made at Kiwi, because it was a progression. You didn't get Quest 23 until you completed Quest 22, and Quest 24 mm-hmm. came after Quest 23, and so it was very uh, and levels were very much mapped out and so the whole experience was a path that we tried to move you down and yeah you can you can take detours but the flow is in one direction it's like yeah. a river mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that everyone in their user experience is you know on, in, in in if you just look at like an onboarding flow it's very similar to you want to move people down a very strict path of onboarding but they can go and take and take you know, some side roads, you really don't care, but you know, you have to complete your profile in order to be on Facebook right? Right. Um, and certain elements have to exist. Right. And so the more, the trickier part is what's the gold quote unquote, golden path to get people to engagement. Mm-hmm. That is a path that has to be very deliberate and there could be maybe multiple paths, but there is sort of one clear vector of engagement that you want people to get to because people, not everybody is going to be engaged with your game, but you want everybody, you want a shot at everybody yeah, exactly. and you don't want to, you don't want them to leave because you didn't ask or you don't want them to leave because you didn't try to move them down that path people aren't going to do what you want them to do unless you ask got it okay and that so makes and sense. then yeah. you know this is the whole 30 follows in 30 days seven friends in 10 days all these different rules of thumb that seem very clear now at the time i'm sure it was a bunch of zigs and zags to <laughs> yeah, get there right. and they've talked about this um all those growth teams but you know it, it is trying to understand what is what is that moment where people Clearly understand what you're ready to offer, and either they get it or they don't, and you got to accept both sides of that coin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it wasn't because you didn't try to get them there. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That 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 definitely uh, that makes in, a lot of an sense. And in an app, it's interesting because there's one entry point. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to install it, and everybody has to open it for the first time. In a website, they can enter your website through any given page, yeah, right. through any given channel, and it's difficult to control the message. And it's difficult to control what it looks like unless you just block it and just force everybody to one funnel. But, you know, you can experience Quora by landing on a post through a Google search. You can experience Quora because someone shared a link somewhere and you can land on the post directly or you can just land on their homepage, which looks like you can't even get in. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so it's so different. And you have to address all those different entry points. And in a site like Creative Live, with a lot of content and a lot of pages and a lot of courses, people find us through so many different ways. And, you know, not no two organic searches are built the same.
0: Yeah. No, that, that, yeah, I think that that's one of the blessings and the curse of, you know, a mobile versus web yep. and, and everything else.
1: Take advantage of that blessing.
0: And along those lines, I mean, one thing um, <clears throat> I think uh, what you talked about is how you were the guy who maybe wasn't building those loops but were, was measuring it. Mm-hmm. And the reason you were measuring it is so that um, you could go out and buy the right users mm-hmm. and you, yep. you could put the right yep. traffic. And I think that this is kind of the next big evolution or the next big Area in mobile that's going to become a new frontier mm-hmm. is how to turn traffic into paying users or turn traffic into anything. Yeah. So let's just talk about that for a second because yep. if if someone like yourself or a company or an indie developer they have an app they've got all the analytics dialed in they've they've done mm-hmm. a good job they've got these loops built well enough mm-hmm. you know they they have an idea you have got to grow something yeah yeah and they say okay now I want to go at least get enough users in there to get some data yeah. What what would you got? What were you guys doing? And what what's like what's kind of the play by play on? All right. Now I've got to go buy some traffic.
1: So even though we were so, you know, we were bigger and more sophisticated and all that. The day you hit go on our we we'd beta games in other countries. The day we hit go, we had no idea what was actually going to happen. Mm-hmm. No clue. We played the games a million times. But we had no idea if people were gonna monetize or not. We knew we were gonna ask. We knew we built this engagement loop. We didn't know if it was real engagement or it was just an empty loop. We had no clue. That's the thing about games, right? It takes you two years to build something that might fall flat, and you gotta be accepting of that. Um, So how do you minimize the time to the answer? Mm -hmm. And I think that the answer for us was, is there a loop here that is self-reinforcing at a level that makes it viable, given the market dynamics, and is there enough monetization? And I think that when we launched our games into beta, you know we would put in a lot of traffic because we knew that the best traffic to measure was organic traffic because mm-hmm. those are the that was that was going to be the true measure of the of the game's value and so just putting in a bunch of traffic and measuring all of our traffic because we were putting in incentivized users was not going to give us the answer we needed we needed a way and make sure that we were sifting out the organic traffic from the non-organic traffic so that we knew what we were measuring so many times people look at an ab test or you know uh, on different websites or apps and they just look at it for all users but not all users are created given their level of intent.
0: And just to clarify, organic traffic, meaning people that are in the app store
1: searching for... Mm -hmm. People that you didn't pay for. Yeah, okay. People you didn't buy. Got it, right. Um, And that still has, you know, people, there's a word of mouth there, there's charts, and there's other nuances, but to us it was the cleanest we could get. Okay, got it. It was the cleanest uh, set of users we could get for whom to measure the engagement loop and the monetization loop and all the usual metrics like retention and mon- and LTV. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, for us it cost money to buy traffic to then put in users and we didn't know how it was gonna go but we knew we were gonna spend X dollars to put in expectation of putting in X number of users that would get X number of organic users and we knew that that over time gave us the answers we needed. Mm-hmm. So planning that ahead of time exactly how much you're gonna spend and, and at the end of the day, how much is the answer worth to you? Mm-hmm. you know people say like well you can't test everything before you actually launch it you know these are soft launches if you want if you will these betas but you know are you willing to spend $5000 to at least get an answer because yeah. what's the opposite you spend the same 5000 over 3 months without an answer so you're paying for an answer and That's just really make idea. sure you do it thoughtfully because for us we couldn't drip in users because we we have to do cohorts and if we start tweaking things we got to put in more users and so we'd buy some users enough to get a meaningful number of organics into our game in 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 other countries we'd measure that do it again so we can measure a new cohort of people because as we as we tweak things we try to get those people to be to behave differently and in a game especially when they come in and they experience it the first time, I'm not, you know, when I tweak something, I'm not looking at those users. I got to look at fresh users again because mm-hmm. it's a totally different experience. You baseline people totally differently in the first day or two, first few hours, uh, if you're making tweaks to the onboarding flows. That's.
0: I, I really want to jump in because that what you just said is probably the most, the best way I've ever heard someone explain the difference between intro level marketers and veteran marketers. Is that veteran marketers, even with the exact same budget. Will walk in and they will spend that money as fast as they can to get answers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, developers who are not marketers, they they spend so much time trying to perfect it, but they don't re- they don't really know what they're perfecting. They don't have mm-hmm. the answers. And when you get to the next level, you find that people really do just take the take whatever money they can to buy data, so that they know that they're doing the right or wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I, I just I think that's really important yeah. because a lot of people in the indie world don't they, they look at money as like well if I run out of money I, I have nothing left to do mm-hmm. they don't see like well now I know what to do
1: you could still you could spend less money and not have an answer and you still don't know what to do exactly yeah. so how do you want like, to who you, cares? I mean, yeah. you know like someone I know once said if the if the data says zero that's data yeah. right that's also information that tells you you might want to tweak some things yeah, right. that's true right yeah. like you know we spend some good amount of money doing our whole groupon affiliate stuff signing up for that registering all that stuff. And when zero people be converted, that's data. That's data. Yeah. <laughs> right? We stopped doing it. <laughs> yeah, but if exactly. we hadn't gone for it, we could theorize all we wanted. If we didn't just try and buy guarantee CPMs and buy impressions to get real behavior out of people, you'll never know. Yeah. And I think that the other point there too is, you know, we look at cohorts. And I think a lot of people look at funnels in abstract, but they don't think about, well, how do new users go through an experience and after I tweak something put in more new users and compare those new users to the other new users and see how their experiences differ. So, cohorting users over time is incredibly important because as you make tweaks, let's say you let's say success case, you get past the beta, you launch something, it's doing well. You start making some tweaks to the onboarding flow. How do you know if it worked? Mm. And the the it this seems basic, but it's not easy to co- to to do cohort analytics on people. It's not simple. Um, and so To look, because so many people focus on the funnels and not the cohorts. And so when you look, you start comparing, you know, over time as I've made my tweaks, how have the first seven days for every new user looked like over time for a particular unbiased sample like organic users as 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 an instance? Have I gotten better over time or have all the little mini tweaks I've done because you're so in the data and you're so into the details, you've paused and not been able to look up and say well is this resulting in any what's the magnitude of change here over time after all the hard work i've poured into this thing Mm. has it changed my answer
0: and when you say cohorts you're you're talking about comparing version 1.01 with version 1.02 as separate groups of users
1: yeah because the for you know when you first hear about a brand or a website or a service you go in and look at it. You experience it. Let's say it's not interesting. Mm-hmm. Let's say in a month they make a lot of changes, and you and you or someone else, let's say someone else comes in and experiences that. If they've figured things out and gotten the message across sooner, not necessarily even built anything different, just message the the onboarding differently. That person will experienced that way differently than you did and I think that uh, you know as you make those changes you have to understand you might be less likely to retain though even if you did come back than the first person because then the other person because the other person their first impression was way different Mm -hmm. and so understanding that nuance and that you know people are tainted by their past experiences you know you have to you have to iterate your way to success and that to me You know, as you make tweaks and everything, you can improve a funnel, but does it change your answer and does it make the new people coming into the service um, get what you're trying to offer? Or does it, it, you know, does the new onboarding flow that you created for your game not just get more people through, but do they retain more, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Does it baseline them differently? Because it's hard to make up for churned users. Once you churn people, you can resurrect them, but it's a different dynamic than people not having churned in the first place. Keeping them around. Right?
0: So let's say you were gonna. If someone said, "Okay, uh, I'll buy some traffic. I'll buy some users. I've got mm-hmm. the game. I've got some basic setups. You know, I'm ready. Yeah. To, I got a casino game. I'm ready to do it." Where let's say they had five thousand dollars to spend. Let's say mm-hmm. they had a thousand bucks or whatever. Yeah. Um, what would you what would you do with that budget? And then also, what did you do with Kiwi when you had much bigger games and also bigger budgets?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. If it's an unproven game, if you don't know the metrics, your only objective with that money is to answer the questions that you need in order to understand how you can spend 10x. Mm-hmm. Similarly at Kiwi, the numbers were different, but I had to justify spending, when I spent X amount of money on a beta, I had to justify spending 10x that on a launch, and when I spend 10x that on a launch, I have to justify spending 100x that during the life of a game. Mm-hmm. and. Many times what happens is, in games especially, this is specific to games, but any business, you have to you have to model out what success looks like. And success uh, sometimes doesn't mean how many downloads you get. It rarely does. What success means is, what do I have to believe about the trickle of people that's going to come in over the next month or two what does month three look like with all those people inside the game are they even there mm-hmm. if they're not there then that means that I'm gonna to have to continue to acquire users at this rate and so am I ready to sign up for that and many times if you have a casino game you want your you know you have to find a flat retention curve for a subset of users and so the biggest thing for your first thousand dollars five thousand dollars is how can I not only quickly but how can I deliberately get to the answer of is there a flat retention curve here for people right because if you don't know that and you don't measure that you don't know what your ongoing spend and your ongoing marketing needs are going to be to sustain the business and let alone grow it because you have to think i'm going to have to make up for some churned users and then i'm going to have to buy more in order to grow this thing but when you grow are you growing and those people are going to pay off for the next six months or they're going to pay off for the next six days
0: does it make a difference where you spend that money? Like, does it matter if it's from Chart Boost or Facebook yeah. or App or whatever?
1: We used to always bias to the organic installs because that ends up being a big part of our install base over time Mm. Um, now at the time there weren't that many sources either Mm -hmm. Um, now I think that Facebook you can clearly drive a good amount of um, value ongoing value for your game just from Facebook and organic users Um, I think incentivized users for games have a place mostly just to drive organic installs some some level of organic installs over time which comes from the chart lift Usually, yeah so you buy those in order to achieve some some level of discoverability on the charts and some velocity so that the algorithms of so the app stores can start surfacing you in recommended, related, you know, because the, the, the ranking, so let's say you show up in a related um, app screen. Mm-hmm. That has to have a, a, a ranking. There's, yeah, right. there's an order to that, and it's usually descending order based on some variable. Mm-hmm. And the variable for that is not, OBD. That's not the business development. Yeah, right. You know, you know a guy. <laughs> that is an algorithm that's based on something and it might be based on velocity of installs and so you might have to, you know, there's all these little ways that you don't have a lot of visibility to, unlike on the web with SEO, you don't have a lot of visibility into what goes into it. but. You certainly know, you start seeing what the outcome is of pushing in a certain number of incentivized users and you sort of find a balance to where you continue some level of momentum to continue the, the flow of organic users. But I tell you, you know, Facebook today, especially for a, a more niche game like a casino game, there's a lot of different targeting vectors you can use on Facebook to actually drive in a good amount of audience, but again, what you, you first have to test no matter what the quality of traffic, what does my retention curve look like Mm -hmm. so that I properly understand what I'm signing up for. Am I signing up for a game where I have to replenish 100% of users every month? Or am I signing up for a game where over time I can actually build a nice stable base of ongoing users and I won't want to promote it after that, I'll just let it churn and I'm on to the next game. You have to know what you're signing up for. To measure that, you guys had a very sophisticated analytics setup, specifically Mm -hmm.
0: on Android. What, I don't know if you, if there is a, uh, an answer to this. Is there a solution that's out of the box, now that can help can answer that retention issue. I mean, with Google Analytics or
1: Mixpanel or Flurry. Yeah, I mean, like, look, we. I mean, yeah, Mixpanel is a pretty good solution because it, it essentially serves as your event-based events. Mm-hmm. And then you can, when you have your events, you can download that data and do whatever you want with it. Yeah. Then it just becomes Harsing a bunch of SQL queries. Yeah, right. and they have pretty good visualizations of your retention rates and on a daily, weekly basis. And I think for games, usually you think of the world on a daily basis, and they do it over time too. So they give you the cohorts of different, you know, over time for people that join this day, this week, this month, what their retention curve looks like every day. And so I'd say get as granular as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't have someone that can query the thing, then install Mixpanel, grab the data, download the, the Excel file, and get into Excel and figure it out. Because spending more time understanding at the granular level all of your input metrics is going to pay off handsomely when then you know, A, what you're signing up for, and mm-hmm. if you want to make the deliberate decision to sign up for it or not, don't be a victim of it. Um, and B, just so much more clarity into what's required to be successful. Mm-hmm. Is what required to be successful changing your retention curve or putting in more users? Because you have a finite amount of time and you got to choose sometimes. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. you just have to understand what you want to do. And I think that those you know these tools nowadays. There was no there was no mix panel when we did it. There was no, no such thing. It didn't exist, and so we had to do something. Um, but I think that the, the, we always do the analytics not to describe, it, but to inform our future decisions and, and inform what what we're going to do next. Speak uh, along the lines of buying traffic, and whether it be
0: for buying apps or even now, um, because you're buying a lot of traffic for Creative Live and for you know a lot of a lot of companies are. What are some of the biggest Differences in the mobile space, or not mobile, uh, in the traffic space now, and what I mean by that is, last time we talked a lot about things like custom audiences and lookalike audiences, mm-hmm. and specifically with mobile apps to so the IDFAs and mm-hmm. how to tag people. Yep. Um, and that's in the grand scheme of things, relatively new um, technology. Yeah. How has that impacted you know how, how has that impacted your experience, and how do you see that kind of Continuing to impact the like the mobile space or even the web space for buying traffic.
1: Yeah, the the um, specifically to your point about custom audiences and lookalikes. Um, you know, on the web, a lot of the ad spend goes to retargeting mm-hmm. because it, you know, if you think about what the what it takes a user to show up to your game, because you only know that they they're there when they open the app, but they've either seen your ad or seen the listing, uh, seen the ranking, clicked on your, gotten to your app store listing. Looked at your screenshots, read your description, maybe, mm-hmm. clicked install, confirmed the install, downloaded it, and then opened it. What's it? And then what did it take someone to invoke your website? Right. A fraction of that, and so you you have such a highly vetted audience on mobile that's w- incredibly different. And mobile apps, we're talking native apps mm-hmm. versus online.
0: And just for everyone's clarification, retargeting. Is just you're basically buying traffic that is quote unquote warm traffic that has yep. that understanding. you've you. seen before. Yeah, and yep. that, that example being like they've installed your app and you're kind of re advertising your app on a website. Mm-hmm. They've they've visited your app your website once and you're you're trying to get them to come back mm-hmm. a second or third yeah. time.
1: Yeah, and 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 I think that that's why retargeting retargeting on mobile is difficult for mm-hmm. mobile apps. Um, I think it's it's possible for apps like Hotel Tonight or Kayak or these travel apps because you never know when someone's going to be ready to travel and they might. Come back to your app with games. If they churn, it's very difficult to bring them back. Mm -hmm. You know, we've done a ton of experimentation around that. For us, because the bar is so low to visit your website compared to opening, downloading, and opening your app, that there's very good reason why they might not have had the experience you intended Mm -hmm. in a mobile app they're really into you by the time they open your app and you see them for the first time so that's a critical moment anyway but on a website somebody might you might have said oh creative live somebody you know listening to this podcast in about five seconds goes to our website doesn't understand something closes it but i can bring that person back Mm -hmm. um or they might take 20 seconds or two pages in exploring, and then they leave, because it was such a fleeting visit. There's good reason why I need to bring them back and properly inform them about who we are and what we do, and onboard them properly to make them let them make the decision of whether we have something that's interesting to them or not. And that's why the retar- You know, most of the banner ads. You you know, everybody experiences this when you visit a website and then you leave and you go to another website, and the banner ads all of a sudden right. start marketing the prior service yeah. you just visited. And I think that, but you know, because it's so easy to come in and come out of a website as a, compared to a mobile app, there's very good reason why that's really ROI positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll get a good return on your investment for those retargeting ads. And that's a lot of what we do here at Creative Live is trying to understand if people visit a course page and they're interested in a particular course and they couldn't vet the course properly at the time and then they leave, you know, we're trying to bring them back and say, hey, finish your vetting process, maybe this is interesting to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on mobile apps, it's a lot harder, but I think that it's still possible. Games, it, became, it was very, very difficult because Because once you churn out of a game, you know, it's pretty much uh, decided that you're not into that game at that point. The one thing on mobile that acts like retargeting is your notification system. Mm -hmm. Having notifications is incredibly important because you're not always going to be top of mind, no matter how awesome your app is, no matter how good your game is. No matter who you are, the top game developers in the world use notifications to bring people back. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just for events that are occurring in the thing, but in the game, but also just to remind them, hey, you need to collect this rent, or hey... You know, make sure you finish. Uh, you know, this this building is done. You know, spitting out whatever currency you wanted it to. With
0: and along those lines, um, I think yeah, one of the hardest things with custom audiences is the churn issue, which you which you talked about. Um, yeah. And I think the only successful, only really successful instances I've seen of that, and talking to a handful of uh, marketers about this. Is when you you try to you reengage buyers to keep spending more. Just yep. remind them to come back into the game. That's a spend. great.
1: You made a great point there, which is buyers. Right. Which is find know. the right. You know, not every custom audience is created equal. Mm-hmm. Not every retargeting audience is created equal. Right. You know, we have audience retargeting here at Creative Live that targets people who have been in their cart. It's very common in e-commerce platforms. Those are very different people than someone who just. Browse the course page, right? Yeah, exactly. And so they're not all created equal. So you want to price them differently. And you certainly want to, the more segmentation you do in your custom audience, the better, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the more you'll understand what their motive, potential motivations and in what voice you need to, you know, what they're, what they might be missing to finally validate your game service product or whatever it is. You know, I heard there was a great example given one time where people who, um, you know, uh, went through us. there's another uh, service on the web that has a trial, it's a subscription service and has a trial membership and people who go through a trial, they realize that then when they retarget those people, when they don't, um, you know, go on and, and sign up for the full product, they try to retarget them to try to convince them to come back and do that. And they realize that using people in the ads for that particular group of, for that particular audience was... Very impactful because hmm. they were sort of trying to find social validation that they, that other people were also sure. subscribing to this service and that they weren't the only ones because yep. they did it in isolation through a trial. Mm-hmm. And so, the, even the, what goes into the ad unit, knowing the psychology of where people are in their purchase in their purchase mm-hmm. decision making process or their. Engagement decision-making process, where they want to continue engaging with you or not, informs what message you send them and what they might be missing, and what you need to tell them to get them over that hump or make them decide that it's not for them. That's right. an outcome too, and you got to be okay with that.
0: And, and with that, the kind of the when you want to potentially get new users or you want to scale, yeah, the next level would probably be lookalike audiences. It's a great
1: it's a great point. Lookalike audiences phenomenal. Yeah, I mean it's uh, especially for games and mobile. And we're talking mostly about Facebook, but there's some other platforms like Twitter that have lookalike audience. same concept of lookalike audiences too. The amazing thing about Facebook is that they use a lot of information to inform their lookalike audience. So to try and find, you know, what you do and, and the mechanics of it, maybe we can explain if people don't know. Is you take a list of either IDFA's or email addresses or whatever you've collected um, from your service, and you upload it into Facebook. And Facebook, what it'll do is it'll run an algorithm that tries to find people that look like the people you just uploaded. Right. So be very thoughtful about what you upload what you upload sometimes isn't what Facebook reads, right? It is their algorithm, and it's a b- little bit of a black box into what goes into it, but you can imagine it's a lot of likes and interests and things like that. The amazing thing about mobile and the amazing thing about games is that they have first-party behavior data on people using games because people played games on Facebook. Right. And so it's very different than just doing it based on affinities because you liked certain pages or did certain things. And you know, a year ago they announced that they were going to start using web browsing behavior to inform their lookalike audiences and what pages you connect to Facebook on so that it's actual behavior that informs the look-alike and that's that's why games is unbelievable because if you upload a list of for example your purchasers uh, from your game um, Facebook will likely have really good information of people that look, you know, they'll know those people, a subset of them, they will know what other games they've played and engaged with and even paid in, and so they'll try to find, they'll use that information to try to, you know, score other people on a likeness factor, and then you can go chase people, and the amazing thing about the lookalike is that, unlike retargeting, which is just based on how many people visit your site, Mm -hmm. right, you can only go after those people, this automatically, if you go down the different uh, percentages, so in lookalikes, you can choose the top 1%, 2%, all the way to 10 percent there are two million plus people waiting to be targeted by you every time the audience comes back to be about two million people at least and so what you're doing is just applying a very sophisticated filter on top of it so it's a completely different new audience you're trying to go find and you know they're always iterating that but i think that that in terms of scaling up a game and not just looking at recycled audiences that's a very big deal and anybody who comes in through that becomes a retargeted audience too Wow! If you have, yeah,
0: that's yeah, exactly. It's like it's kind of a one feeds the other, yeah. and you mm-hmm. know, it's just yeah, yeah I, stuff is it's unbelievable. Um, let's talk about we're gonna got a couple more questions, then yeah. we'll, we'll wrap it up. But I really want to talk about um, what goes into making a really profitable app from an operation standpoint. Yep, um, great question. Because I think that this is something that small indie developers don't get access to necessarily. Um, they, they they, might not have the same information that you ha- we have as, like, you know, top people. Mm-hmm. So if someone came to you and said, uh, I really want to make a really profitable, big app, what would you say, you know, in loose priority are the most important things that you're going to want to have? Let's, when I say profitable app, let's say it'll make a million bucks in a year. Yep. So, okay. Say something like that.
1: Um, I'd say you have a list here. Um, I'll put these in order. Okay, great, yeah. Um, developer without a line of code you're pretty much done mm-hmm. it ain't gonna happen <laughs> um, but I mean you can get around that you can download source code yep. um, from you know sites like yours um, to try to get you started mm-hmm. um, you can outsource it it doesn't matter right right but you need someone developing the lines of code without that you have nothing mm-hmm. um, I'd say analytics second because you got to know if those lines of code are good yeah what's what's happening <laughs> um, and UA, I think third. I think that you know, if you have analytics and you have hustle, you have UA. Um, but you got to have a mentality for that. I think design fourth, mm-hmm. and budget fifth. You sometimes don't need a big budget to make stuff happen. Yeah. And it all depends on you know what answer you're trying to solve for. Are you trying to solve for a viability answer? Are you trying to figure out if you have a business that you can scale to be a million dollars a year? And how you achieve a million dollars a year is drastically different. For when you go from gaming company to gaming company, even within the same company, from game to game, because mm-hmm. some games churn more people than others, but they make a ton of money, and some games don't churn anybody, and they you don't need to buy that many people. Yeah, right. It just changes so differently. But I think that so the order them being developer, analytics, UA, design, and budget, in that order, and I think you can get around a lot of these things. The one you can't get around is analytics. Yeah. There is no way you get around being able to measure what you're doing because mm-hmm. you just don't know. Uh, without it, I mean any you know, there's a there's something I always tell people when when they're just starting either an app or a game or when they're just starting their company, it seems crazy to invest so much time into the analytics side of the house. Budget or time or effort. But you Inevitably, every company, over time, the needs, the, the needs for your analytics, the need for analytics and the level of sophistication needed to continually be successful is going to rise, and that will rise exponentially, and it'll happen overnight, mm-hmm. and you won't even realize it. So, at the beginning, you're over-investing in analytics more than you should at that point, because you might not have that many lines of code written, and you might not have a viable game yet, but it doesn't matter. And then you have to continually improve those analytics over time, and so that when the needs come and they show their and they're gonna they're gonna show themselves that the needs to have sophisticated analytics, you're ready to meet that head on. You're not starting to invest in your analytics when the need is there, because then you you will never catch up to that because that curve is exponential, and you you can't exponentially get better in analytics overnight.
0: It's amazing amazing to hear you you talk about that because I think. analytics would probably be number five on most indie developers' lists. They'd be like, oh yeah, I threw Flurry in there. I threw Google Analytics. And it's only probably the last year I've started to really tell people, especially on Blue Cloud Select, which is our kind of community, Mm -hmm. to say analytics is so much more important than even I realized. But once you start seeing a lot of data, you're like, oh my gosh! Like now I know.
1: I'm so limited time, limited budget. You got to know where to take your next hour and spend it. And mm-hmm. analytics will tell you exactly what you need to do, and it'll paint a picture for your next X number of months or years of that game or your life. Mm-hmm. It'll tell you what it'll be like, and you got to again sign up for that or not. Yeah, exactly.
0: So let's do the last question. And yeah, and one question I really want to ask a lot of people I interview is going to be about um, how they would make a million bucks. Because I think asking smart people about that's a. It's a well, you know, it's, if I had the answer, <laughs> yeah, you know. we wouldn't. We said, yeah. We'd be on a in Tahiti <laughs> yeah. somewhere. Um, this would be done on a yacht. <laughs> if someone came to you and said, "All right, I want to build that app we just talked about. I want to build a million-dollar app, and we're going to give you the re- what, like, we're going to give you whatever resources you mm-hmm. need to build that million-dollar app. And it's like, let's say you know, you no job, you know, tons of time, tons of freedom, everything. Yep. Um, what would be the first few steps you would take? What would be the first things you ask for? To and what what what, what niche would you go into? What what would you build? Would be a website? No, well, I would have no know?
1: idea what niche because I told you if I did, I'd go do it. <laughs> um, assuming someone has an idea for what they think is, you just described VC funding, by the mm-hmm. way. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I would tell you the first thing I want to do is find one or two other people to do it with me, because mm-hmm. I know there's there's uh, you know you have to be very realistic about the probabilities of success and you have to be very realistic about your own skill set and what you bring to the table look doesn't mean you need to supplement every weakness you have understand the strengths you have but there are probably complementary strengths that someone else has that accentuate yours or can be used to amplify them and I just don't bias to flying solo with these type of things. Mm-hmm. I think t- you, you gotta have a devil's advocate. You gotta have someone else, whether they're advisors or their people to do it with you. I'd bias to do it with you because the thing I see now a lot of times is it's so easy for anybody to start something, mm-hmm. an app, a game, a company, there's a lot of disaggregation of talent. It's being dissipated. It's in five different companies instead of those five people all doing it together and sometimes they're chasing different industries and sometimes unfortunately they're chasing the same one and when you see that it's a shame because together You know, one of them might be successful, but together it could be so much more special. The success could be different Mm -hmm. if it was all together. None of these companies that we see today were built by one person. It was one person that might be the head of it, but they had a very, very strong team around them. And I think literally my first step is, who am I doing this with? Mm -hmm. Because I know that having unbelievable talent together makes it much more powerful and, and heightens your probability of success tenfold if not more Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think that that was our mentality at Kiwi was we first had to find the best best people because without it we knew it wasn't going to be a one man show or a two man show we knew it was going to be a team of very very talented people working really hard to make it happen so that to me is step number one because my idea of, a, of an app could be terrible yeah. and I want somebody else who's really talented and has a lot of horsepower and hustle to tell me that's terrible <laughs> um, and then the other thing I and then the next thing would be to sit down and map out a plan mm-hmm. for how do we then make the next million without having to either raise money or without having to do it all over make again make it sustainable so how do you yeah how do you build upon that success so how do we make it so that it builds upon itself because then after that either you're going to get bored or do something else or uh, you know y- i want to build something much more enduring mm-hmm. something that you know the all the work and blood sweat and tears that goes into making that million dollar app makes the next million dollar app a lot easier mm-hmm. to build very and i cool. think that that to me from day one to think about how that's going to happen very cool and then i'll figure out what the idea is yeah then everything else falls <laughs> <Yeah>. into place <laughs> so easy right yeah. yeah well jp
0: this has been great and if people want to learn more um about what you're doing and what you're up to mm-hmm. where should they go What's what's a good place to check out? I mean, Creative Live, obviously.
1: Yeah, I'm. You know, right now on my Creative Live. If you wanna, um, you can follow me on Twitter at JP Sanday, S-A-N-D-A-Y. Cool. Um, or just hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm happy to talk to people too about anything, and you know, they can reach out to you, and, and you have all my contact info. So I, you know, I talk to people all the time about this stuff, and some of it is good advice, some of it's not good advice, but I'll talk. Yeah, it's real. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, man. That's been awesome. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. No worry, man. Thanks for this has been another episode of the Blue Cloud
0: Podcast. For more information on app development, ebooks, reliable source codes, and more, expand your mobile knowledge by going to BlueCloudSolutions.com.